Turn, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2. Sorry I didn't notice the podium wasn't here. So, for whatever reason, it keeps disappearing. <clears throat> we'll uh, try to get through this, but last time my computer fell off the podium. So. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, As therefore you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in your faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this is one of those passages that uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, it's a crossroads passage. It's a passage that sort of summarizes Christianity to an extent, and uh, <clears throat> it's a rich passage as the Holy Spirit works in our heart and, and woos us with this passage. Um, and he speaks and he just, just draws out that love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that he is the center of everything. That we're to walk in him. We're to be rooted, build it up, established, and so on. This is just one of those passages that tends to get hung on the wall. There are a number of them in the New Testament. This is one of them. But this morning we just want to sort of open this passage up a bit. And... Uh, I'm going to see what it has to say to us. Why don't we ask the Lord to be with us in doing that? Heavenly Father, we come again to your great throne of grace. You are a great God. You are full of majesty and glory and honor. And we come to a passage today written by your Holy Spirit, written through men, but written ultimately by your Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts, that same Holy Spirit who works in us to cry, Abba, Father, unto you. Holy Spirit who takes these words and gives us life through them. And we ask you to do that this morning. We ask, Lord, as we open up what looks on the surface to be a simple passage, and, and it is, but that doesn't mean it isn't rich and full and gripping. And uh, Lord, just pray that you would speak to our hearts. Some come here, as we do every week, with different circumstances. We've had a good week, a bad week, a medium week. It's been a hard week, an easy week. Lord, we come here with a lot on our mind. We come here with frustrations. We come here with just dullness or meandering thoughts. Lord, just pray that you'd give us all grace to gather our minds and hearts together and to come before your throne this morning. This is not some sacramental activity, but it is an activity that you bless, an activity of opening of your word to our minds, to our hearts, to encourage, to enliven, uh, to settle, to establish, to give us joy, peace, confidence. Lord, we just ask you would do that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, now this occurs in a letter of Colossians. And just a quick little background. Colossae was sort of on the <clears throat> western end of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Um, 
Colossae was situated in a very in a very mountainous area. This would be like living up at Caesar's head. Uh, Colossae was nestled in the midst of all these mountains. If you uh, look at Colossae, which is over there on the right of the map, you see that Colossae is actually in a valley. It's not just sitting on a mountain. It's near mountains in this valley called the Lycus Valley, from named for the Lycus River that uh, uh, is there, that it's situated on. Colossae has a proximity to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a more prominent city in the Roman Empire, certainly in the Mediterranean, certainly in the Bible. We think of Ephesus a lot. Um, And the reason we want to know that there's sort of this proximity there, because, well, there was a guy named Epiphras. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul is saying, you've got this great gospel And you all heard it, you all received it, as you learned it from this fellow named Epiphras. Now, depending on uh, how Epiphras is used in the Greek, it might be pronounced Epaphras. Uh, I'm sticking with Epiphras. That's one of the, I don't know, forms of his word as it's used in the uh, grammar in the Greek. And I just happen to like that one. But you learned it from Epiphras. These people heard this gospel from Epiphras. Epiphras was a native of Colossae. He grew up on that mountainous area, that Lycus River Valley with all these mountains around, beautiful mountains. He spent time with Paul in Ephesus. Somehow he got to Ephesus, and during Acts chapter 19, we read that Paul came to Ephesus, and God did a mighty work throughout all of Asia Minor, where Colossae is. And Colossae is sort of just an example of what was going on all over the, really the continent of Asia Minor, Paul was in Ephesus for two years. God did special mighty works through him. He actually opened up a school in the, well, he opened up some teaching sessions in the school of Tyrannus. And what probably happened here is Epiphras was in Colossae, somehow got to Ephesus, heard the gospel from Paul, was converted, went to the school of Tyrannus, Paul's uh, little ministry school there for a year or two. He was converted, he was trained, and then he returned to Colossae as a faithful shepherd teacher of the Lord. And so we have this reference, just as you learned this gospel from Epiphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your or our behalf, depending on how, <clears throat> how you read it, and has made known unto us your love in the Spirit. And at this point, Paul is in prison in Rome, and Epiphras has gone to Rome to visit Paul and is telling what's going on in Colossae, and Paul is responding by writing this letter. Now, the proximity of Ephesus to Laodicea is, or rather Colossae, is about 120 miles. And one of the things you'll notice is that you have all these trade routes, so just sort of giving you that distance of about 100, 120 miles. You see in the red here, I tried to follow the, the dashed lines on this, on this map are trade routes. And I've tried to sort of mimic it in the red so you can see it. The Colossae is at the trailhead over there on the right of the map of all these routes to all these seaports in which you had all these goods and services flowing through the Mediterranean. And that's important to understand that Colossae was in these trade routes because up before Paul endorses Epiphras. He talks about because of the hope in chapter 1, 5, and 6, because of the hope laid up for you in the heaven of which you previously heard in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you. So when Epiphras came, 
He brought the truth. Paul knows he brought the truth because there's Paul at Rome hanging out with Epaphras and he knows Epaphras knows the truth. And he knows Epaphras preaches the truth. So he has every, every confidence that when Epaphras had been at Colossae, he had given them the word of the truth of the gospel. And so Paul opens his letter with this emphasis on there being only one true gospel. They heard it from Epaphras, the faithful servant of Christ, a teacher. And there's this focus at the beginning on this word of truth, which actually has bearing on our passage. If you look a little more at the bottom of our passage, verse 6, that even as it's been doing unto you, this gospel has been bearing fruit, even as it's been bearing fruit in you also, since the day you heard, you have to hear the gospel, you have to believe the gospel, you have to embrace the gospel in order for the gospel to have its effect in your life. The day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You see, God's grace is bound up with the true gospel. Everybody wants to talk about grace, and that's a good thing. They want to talk about God's grace, and that's a good thing. But God's grace comes within the framework of a clear gospel, a gospel that has boundaries to it, a gospel that has clarity to it, a gospel that has structure, a gospel that has statement. The grace of God enters our bones, the bones of our soul, in conjunction with truth. Grace just doesn't fall on our lives and we go around and do whatever we want. That's the world's view of things. The world's view is that, well, God's going to be good to me on my terms and on the basis of my thought patterns. And that's, that's not what we see here. We see that the gospel comes and it comes with truth. Grace and truth go together. And God works through his truth to bring grace in our lives. And so truth is central, central to our lives, central to grace, central to the gospel, central to God. God is light. And part of that light is truth. And so it's no surprise that the truth will be opposed. The truth will be distorted by Satan and the world and the forces of darkness. There should never be a surprise that the church in history actually is a train wreck. Because it is the one entity in the history of the world that is opposed by Satan more than any other entity. Satan doesn't care if this wicked government you know, falls or rises. He doesn't care if this wicked person does this or that. What he does care is when Christians stand up for God, when Christians get on their knees and pray, when preachers preach the truth, then Satan's on the job. And Satan's at work. And Satan's going to oppose everything that is truly Christian. So do not be surprised that when you read church history or look around you today, everything's a wreck, a mess. Always has been, always will be, Till the Lord comes back. We are in a war. Ever heard of a war that just had, you know, a nice, neat little, you know, structure to it? <clears throat> well, we had this little battle here, and it was nice, and we took a week off and went to the beach, and then we decided to have another battle. I mean, it doesn't work like that. A war is messy business. A war is a changing fluid battlefield, and that has been the history of the church up to this very moment in time and always will be. And Paul, in the middle of this, he says, just as in all the world, this gospel has been bearing fruit and increasing, what he's trying to point out is to a group of people who are being told that, oh, there are different versions of the gospel. Paul is saying, no, there's only one gospel. This one gospel that has truth around it, the word of truth before this statement, the word of God, grace of God and truth after this, there is one gospel that 
has one version, and it's in all the world doing the same work of saving sinners from sin for 2,000 years. There's only one version of the gospel. Beware of variance. Beware of aberrations. Be careful with so-called contextualizing. Now we know when we bring the gospel, we have to bring illustrations that fit a person's particular social standing, social location. That makes sense, but you never change the truth of the gospel, ever. And you never change its framework of truth. There's no need to. The Holy Spirit wrote this word of God that is for every human being on earth, regardless of their social setting or location. It is in all the world bearing fruit. So Paul opens his letter emphasizing truth, and he opens his letter emphasizing truth because there was a whole lot of opposition to the truth going on. Remember, they're on a trade route. That's the point. And on a trade route, many travelers would stay long enough to peddle their spurious opinions. They'd come through Colossae and they'd say, ah, oh, finally, a little city. I'll take a break, stay at the inn. And <clears throat> hey, I'm traveling. I'm taking my goods to sell at the port of Ephesus or Pergamum or some other place. And, you know, they're just going to start idly chatting about all their various opinions. And these people are being world travelers. They make their living traveling. And so false teachings and false spiritualities were being peddled at Colossae. And they were being peddled, as they always are, with fine words, with smooth and fair and persuasive speech. As it says here, plausible arguments. See, falsehood comes with plausibility. It doesn't come declaring that it's an error. It comes usually with plausibility. And Paul is really worried. He doesn't want anybody, Colossians 2.4, to delude anybody with plausible arguments. The aim of, the gospel, of these plausible arguments is to move you away from Christ in the gospel, usually by little and little. And so we have today's trade routes, where you have all kinds of opinions and ideas, Today's trade routes are what? The internet. You don't even have to travel to get on the trade routes, right? Podcasts, celebrity preachers, everybody out there giving their opinion of what they think the truth is, the gospel is, or how the gospel should be sort of reimagined according to their version of things. Now, right after our passage, Colossians 2.8, Paul takes things up and he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, tradition of men, elementary principles of the world. We'll get to what that means in a minute. Rather than according to Christ. So Colossae was a small town on a big trade route, lots of big ideas passing through. In that day, 2,000 years ago, it would be Greek philosophy, married to Judaism, married to Eastern mysticism. That's what would be peddled, some variant or version of that. And Paul is really worried about this church, not because atheists are going through and saying there was no God. But Paul was worried about what is the biggest danger to Christianity is syncretism. Syncretism might be a fancy word for some of you. To sync up, what does it mean? Hey, let's sync up. All right? I'm going to sync my computer or sync my hard drive or something. What you're going to do is you're going to get your hard drive aligned with another set of data, or you're going to 
sync up. Let's get our lives working together. And syncretism is the act, at least here in religion, of taking this idea from here and this idea from here and blending it all together into a new version, a new blend, a new offering of the gospel. And that's what was going on at Colossae. People were saying, oh, well, I like this idea from Greek philosophy and this idea from Eastern mysticism. And boy, I'm just going to throw in a little bit of Judaism and I'm going to mix it all up and I'm going to come up, <coughs> come up with a really cool version of the gospel. <coughs> and that is far more dangerous to Christianity than a denial of God. Denial of God is really pretty easy to deal with. When someone says they're an atheist or a hard agnostic, that's pretty easy to deal with, actually. The person that's tough is the person who's caught in a cold. They're tough to deal with, aren't they? Because they think they have the truth of the Bible, and they don't. <coughs> so happening at Colossae is what happens today. Counterfeit ideas trying to reshape and reimagine the gospel. That's what Paul was dealing with. Colossians 2.18, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge with regard to food or drink or respect of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. You see, at Colossae, what people were doing is they were taking Judaism, they were taking things out of the Old Covenant, and they were trying to blend it with the New Covenant. A lot of that going on even today. And Paul is saying, hey, look, these, don't, these things don't mix together. You can't mix the Old and the New Covenant. Jesus even told a parable about it, about wineskins. You put the new wine in the old wineskins and everything blows up. They don't mix together. And here this blending of old and new covenant just is one of the errors that were sort of uh, nagging at the Colossian Christians. Colossians 2.18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. As Christians, we have a prize. As Christians, we have a new heavens and a new earth. We have a goal. We have a finish line. We get something at the end of the day. Let no one defraud you of that prize, what you get at the end of the day by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And these are people who are just religious. They're not Christian, they're just religious. There's a big movement in our day to what they call spiritual but not religious. This sort of spiritism, this new age movements, this awakenings and enlightenment that has really no definition, just enlightenment crystals and white light and, and all these things that go on, and they've always gone on, by the way. This is nothing new. So there's this false spirituality. Paul warns the, the, the <clears throat> Colossians against that. And there's this, and then this sense, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. What in the world are elementary principles? Well, the ESV unfortunately, translates it elemental spirits, which is totally unfounded, has no foundation. No, there's no basis for what they did in that. No other translation did that. They decided to come up with a new, uh, a new approach to it. It was sort of popular in these very small scholarly circles for a, you know, about a decade. And so apparently one of the people who translated the ESV got caught up in that sort of populism of that... Uh, that scholarly sort of, uh, I don't know, meandering for a while, and they call it elemental spirits. It's just totally confusing. So what does it mean if you died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world? 
Well, it defines it right in our passage. Why as if you were living in the world and you submit yourself to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. And so there are all these errors at Colossae. There's Eastern mysticism, which brings in this kind of, what you would say, asceticism. This, this idea that I'm going to be humble by being, um, I don't know, aloof by being detached from the world. And then there's the Judaism that says, oh, you got to take care of all the old ordinances and bring a few of them back in, eating and drinking. Don't handle this, don't taste that. And so there's this mixture of craziness going on, attempting to dislodge and undermine the Christians at, Cor or at Colossae. So the real sense of this elementary principles is just simply things that operate on an earthly plane. In our day, if we were to think of what would be elemental principles that are just kind of weird, that Paul would say, why are you doing that? It doesn't have any value. One of them is high church liturgy. And I'm sorry if that offends some Christians because they say, I love high church liturgy. I'm like, I, I can't help it if you love something the Bible condemns. I can't help that you do that. That's not on me. That's on you. Another form you'll see a lot is like the Islamic prayer rituals. Now, I haven't studied anything, nor do I ever intend to. I'm going to study the truth and <clears throat> evaluate the non-truths by it. But uh, you've sort of seen the picture that when the uh, Islam, Islamic fellows will be praying, you've never seen the women with their prayer rugs, but the women, the men do. They'll kind of look this way, and then they'll kind of look that way, you know, as if that matters to God as if that somehow is holy or makes you acceptable. So these Islamic prayer rituals are being an example. Christianized, di Christianized dietary regulations. My grandmother was a Seventh-day Adventist, and she had all these dietary laws out of the Old Testament that we'd have at Sunday dinner when I'd go to visit. And I always think, this is kind of weird, but <coughs> that was my grandma. And other people try to Christianize their own diet. Oh, we should eat this because it says so. No, the Old Testament, no, none of that. That is not the plane of any spiritual thing in Christ. Galatians, we see the same thing. You're observing days and months and seasons and years. These are elemental things. These are worldly things. Jesus himself said, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Jesus clearly saying that external things and external activity, <coughs> external actions, prayer beads, High church, all these things do not make us holy, nor do they defile us before God. They are meaningless to a relationship with God. Hebrews says the same thing, talking about the ordinances of the old covenant. It's saying since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body. And so all that kind of stuff that you'll see in a lot of cults, a lot of people get caught up in, these are just invalid. And all comes because people get on the trade routes of the internet and without discernment just start <clears throat> taking in all kinds of things. So that's sort of the background of our letter. A lot happening. And by the way, again, things haven't changed. If it's not one thing, one movement going to be trying to get a hold of Christians and wash them away, it'll be another. If it's not social justice, it'll be something else. There will always be something Satan is using to try to carry us away from the actual truth of the gospel. 
Now, something else sort of important to our passage is that there were three churches that were associated, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae, in this Lycus Valley. These are mentioned in Colossians. I would have you know how greatly I strive for you, Paul is. I'm striving in prayer for you, Colossians, and for those that are at Laodicea. So Epaphras had preached all over the Lycus Valley, and several small, church, small churches had been formed. You read at the end of the Colossians, I testify to about Epaphras that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Greet the brethren that are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. And so here you have all this preaching went on and there were three, at least three little churches in that area, about 10 miles apart. Paul says, when this letter to Colossians is read among you Colossians, have it also read at Laodicea and for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So Paul sent two letters, one to Colossae to address the particular Colossae, Colossian needs, and a more general letter to Laodicea, which we call the letter to Ephesians. Right here, it's a letter to, it's not the Laodicean letter, it's probably the Ephesian letter, which is a very generic letter, by the way. It's not addressed to any particular person. There's no personal names in Ephesians. It's a very generic, general letter. And that was probably circulating around all of Asia Minor. And it happened to be at Laodicea. And Paul says, you need to read that Ephesian letter. At the end, he says, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry that you received. Archippus was apparently a man who had a lot of potential to preach and teach the gospel. And Paul is saying, make sure that you uh, stir yourself up, like he told Timothy. Stir yourself up. But what's important is Archippus is a name that we also find in the letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, the brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. And so when you look at all that, you see here are these three cities that had three little churches. Where were they meeting? In each place. They were meeting in somebody's house, the house of Nympha, the house of Philemon, and no doubt that Hierapolis, the house, house of somebody there. And so three letters were written to these three churches. I think it's kind of interesting. They're little nothing churches that can fit into a house. I mean, we couldn't fit into a house anymore. We used to be able to, but we couldn't now. But Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea, little nothing churches. And they got three letters from God. Three. That's a pretty big deal. So don't despise a small church. Most churches, by the way, in America are less than 100 people. The vast majority of churches are less than 100 people. Uh, we forget about that because what's notable is supposedly all the big churches where um, who knows what happens there, but in little churches, things can get done. So that's sort of the background. Quick, if you lived at Colossae, you woke up every morning to this wonderful view of these awesome mountains. This would be one of the beautiful days. I'd hate to see it in winter. Now, at the bottom of this picture is this mound, and you think, well, what is that mound? Well, that mound is the old city of Colossae, and if you were to look at it from the air, that's what it would look like. There's this big mound that the city used to be built on. Somebody put a map of what the city looked like from all their excavations on top of that mound, so it's a pretty cool old city. Here's another little picture looking at it from the air. That arrow there is to tell you from the original picture, that mound, that's the direction you're looking at it. So Colossae wasn't a big city, and it didn't have a very big church. But it got three letters from God. So it was big in God's mind, big in God's eyes. So Colossians 2, 6, and 7, what is Paul saying? And I've given you a lot of backgrounds because I'm going to be able to refer to it when we talk about some of the things in here. 
Paul starts out 2, 6, and 7, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. But therefore does it, it connects us to something. Some reason has been given, and then there's a therefore. Here's a statement, and therefore, based on this statement, do something. So the therefore here has everything that's gone before, from chapter 1 to the first part of chapter 2, verse 5, all the way through verse 5. Everything that Paul has said, and there's a ton of things Paul has said, a ton of truth, a ton of exhortation that Paul has given just in those small words. Paul is succinct and brief, but he's gripping and powerful. It's the word of God, not the word of men. And therefore, we're supposed to do some things. In view of everything that I've said before, here's what you should be doing. So this therefore connects us, reminds us of all that's gone before, and it's a summarizing statement that assumes all of the previous content. So this little therefore is packed big uh, with everything that's been said. Therefore also sets the stage for what's to follow in the next verses, 2, 8 and following. So it's kind of a transitional passage here. And he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Now, the essence of this verb to receive means to take to oneself or receive for oneself. It could be take in an active sense or it could be receive in a passive sense. So as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, it's to actively take, accept, or receive something or someone. And that something could be a possession or an idea. It's a very general term. And this term is in the plural. It's always reminding us that we are a larger part of a body of believers whether it's this body here or whether it's the bigger body of Christ, whether it's the global body of Christ, whether it's the eternal body of Christ, we never live as Christians unto ourselves or for ourselves or on our own. Therefore, as you, plural, ye, in the old English we would see, therefore, as ye received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, this word received is in a Greek tense that means a point in time. You see, the Greeks in their language, we actually have it in our language, it's just we use our language every day so we don't analyze it or think about it, we just use it. Okay, we use it because we read stuff and we just learn to talk and all that. We don't really analyze our language. But when you're looking at the Bible, you can analyze it a bit more. It's a dead language, by the way, so it doesn't change since, pretty much since it was written. So there's a very small set of words that you can analyze. But in the Greek, when they talk about a verb, a verb is an action. Someone does something or is something. And you can have an action that's sort of going along, we would call it, you know, an active, continuous going along. Something's happening. Action is currently happening. It's in progress. And that would be the present tense. But then you could say an action that happens once. You know, someone might say, well, you know, Steve ate lunch. I might be one of those people <clears throat> that I go and I have a meal defined at lunch and then I'll eat later at dinner, I'll eat at breakfast, and I have these defined times of the day. So I eat once. But unfortunately I'm not, I'm a grazer. So I kind of eat and snack all day. All right? So eating and snacking all day would be the present tense. Eating here and eating there would be this tense that we have here, this point of time, this event. 
And that's important to understand. It's an event. To receive Christ Jesus the Lord is an event, one-time event here. <clears throat> and it's in what you call the active voice. That is, the subject is doing the action. They are receiving. They are not being received. They are doing the receiving. It's in the indicative mood that means the action has actually happened or is happening. It's not, well, you might receive. That would be subjunctive. This is the indicative mood. It's actually happening. So to receive Christ Jesus the Lord is to do something at a point in time. It is for you to do it. And it's action that you actually do. Maybe it's not, maybe I'm going to do it. Maybe I'm not. It's not potential action. It's actual action. This receiving of Jesus Christ is clearly in the very verb itself, a decisive act which each of these believers has performed. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, this is something you did personally. This is something that you engaged in. This is something that transpired with you. You received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, <clears throat> when I was saved, the Lord saved me in sovereign grace. Showed me some passages in John and some other places, and I'm like, man, you know, God picks sinners. Well, as time went on and my philosophy took over my, uh, my biblical thinking, I became an Arminian. I remember railing on Calvinism. I was up on a roof. I was a roofer for many years, banging on the roof going, John Calvin's crazy. John Calvin's crazy. John Calvin's crazy. I had no clue, actually, what John Calvin taught. I just had heard whatever I'd heard. And then God finally opened my heart, truly, not just initially, but truly, that, that God is sovereign in saving people. What's the first thing that actually happens when you, when you migrate from Arminianism to sovereign grace? What do you do? What's the one thing you don't want to hear? That you had to do something to be saved. Why? Because you believed for so many years that you doing something was what saved you. You're like, that's not true. So I'm not going to listen to anything that, that says, you know, someone has to do this or has to do that because it's all of grace. Right? Wrong. Paul says here that you have to do something. You have to receive Jesus Christ if you're going to be saved. You have to hear the gospel. You have to believe the gospel. You have to embrace Jesus Christ. You have to embrace him for who he is. And we'll be talking about that in a minute. But you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where you get that ability to believe is the, the issue of sovereign grace. What's the dynamic that enables me to believe? Is it free will or is it sovereign grace? But the fact that you must believe is true. It's true no matter whether you're Arminian, no matter whether you're a Calvinist, no matter whether you're in between. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And these Colossians did that. You have to do what they had to do at some point in time. You have to personally and decisively embrace Jesus. Now, in the muddle of that happening, because usually when people are saved, they're saved. Well, we're saved as sinners, right? And sinners usually don't have it together. You start coming to Christ because you realize, I ain't got it. I'm out of spiritual gas. I'm out of personal gas. I'm out of gas altogether. And so when you come to Christ, you're usually in a pretty confused state, a pretty muddled state. 
And when exactly God saves you may be a question. I know approximately within a day or two when the Lord saved me. I can tell you about events that led up, and I can tell you about events that happened after, but I can't tell you the day I actually passed from darkness to light. I can't, I can't tell you the hour. On the other hand, there was this uh, lady at a place I used to, to uh, be in New Jersey at Trinity Baptist Church. There's a young lady there. We had been talking to her about the gospel, and I was in another room, and a guy was talking to her about the gospel, and, and he, was just, he was just going in circles, and I just thought, this isn't working. So I put down my book bindery equipment, walked in the other room, and I just said, you know, you just simply have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Let's pray. We prayed, we finished praying, and she was saved. We knew it. So I'm more clear about the hour in which she was saved than I am about the hour in which I was saved. So you don't have to be clear about what hour or what day. Here's what you have to be clear on. You are a Christian if you have embraced Christ Jesus, the Lord, you have received him. Now, what does that actually mean? What is this receiving? See, the popular evangelical idea of re is I'm going to receive Christ into my heart. Now, there's not, nothing ultimately wrong with that language. You're telling somebody, you need a relationship with Jesus. You somehow need to come to Jesus to get saved. And that'll get people saved. The Lord will act on that. That's good enough. But it's not exactly the terminology that the Bible uses. And some say, what do you mean, Steve? You're reading a passage that says you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. How can you say, be saying that receiving Jesus into your heart is not exactly what it means? That's what we're reading right there. Well, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, when you look at the original language, unfortunately or unfortunately, this is a passage where the original language Sort of helps you or hinders you, however you want to look at it. But it helps you get clear about what it means for Paul to say you are to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. The usual evangelical idea of receiving Christ into your heart is a very subjective idea. There is this personal acceptance of Christ, and it's certainly something one must do. And the subjective aspects of conversion and faith are very relevant. You can read them throughout the book of Colossians. There are tons. I mean, we, we come to know the Lord. So we're not saying that that's not true. I'm just saying that that's not what this term really means here. This term means something else. You see, the focus for Paul when he says you've received someone or something here and as elsewhere doesn't so much to say I'm receiving Jesus into my heart personally to have him live in my heart. That happens, okay? So we're not saying that doesn't happen. But what we are saying is that here, this word means to refree, refree, receive Christ Jesus as the true Christ. Receive him in the truth for who he is. Receive the truth about him and receive him as that truth defines him. Very often when Paul uses this word to receive, he means to receive tradition. Not tradition of men, but the tradition of God, the handing down of God, God's truth. You see, God just doesn't come to each one of us and hand us the truth individually. If he did that, we'd be in a big giant mess. So what he did is, I'm going to hand it some prophets, and some prophets are going to write it down, 
I'm going to hand it to some apostles, and some apostles are going to preach it and or write it down. And everybody's going to get the truth that way. That way the truth is, you know, comes through some control points from God. And that receiving of the truth from the apostles of Christ about Christ, this handing down of the truth is what it means here. You receive the truth about Christ Jesus the Lord. As you heard that truth, that's why I went through all that background. All the heresy, all the attempts to dislodge the faith of the Colossian Christians. Paul is here not saying, as therefore you personally got Jesus in your heart, so walk in him. He's saying, as you receive the Christ that Epiphras preached, as you receive the true Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures, the Christ of the Gospels, that Christ, in the face of all the aberrations, in the face of all the attempts to synchronize and syncretize the Gospel with false ideas, you stay away from those aberrations, you stay away from that syncretism, and you focus on the one true Christ that that faithful minister of God, Epiphras, preached to you. You receive, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, just as you were taught. That's the meaning of it. Now, all over the book of Colossians, again, there's being in union with Christ. There's having the Holy Spirit. There's having wisdom. I mean, we're not saying that's not true. What we're saying is this word does not mean that. That's not what it's for. There are other places in Colossians that teach that. As you received Christ. And the point goes even further. Where he says, you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now in the Greek, it doesn't say Christ Jesus the Lord. It says, the Christ Jesus, the Lord. It would be an awkward translation. So I understand why the translators didn't translate it that way. But if you were a Greek person, you'd be going, oh, I'm really getting it. As you received the Christ, the Christ that Paul has just expounded, the one for whom and through whom the entire creation has been brought into being, and he upholds it with the word of his power. The one who's the head over all the principalities and powers. The one who has done these things. This Christ Jesus the Lord. And there's three aspects to this receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. First of all, he is Jesus. He is Jesus, the true human. You receive a Christ Jesus who is a true human. Some might say, well, why are you, what do you mean? He was, what's the big deal about a true human? The liberal think tanks of today and all of the media material about Jesus, you won't find a movie, a good movie about Jesus anymore. At Christmas, what do they have? They have documentaries about how the Gospels really aren't the Gospels. That there's more than one Gospel. Or we're not really interpreting the Gospels right. Or archaeologists have given us the true Jesus that's different from the Gospel of Matthew or Gospel of Mark or Luke or John. That's the stuff you get at Christmas now. And what they try to do is undermine the reality of Jesus. Paul says, as you receive Jesus, that human Jesus who was born, he lived, he taught, he was crucified in real history. 
We don't need to go looking for the historical Jesus different from the Gospels. The Jesus of the Gospels and the historical Jesus are the same. The Jesus of the four Gospels is whom Paul is saying. We have no other authentic material in the Gospels, and every attempt to try to put in other material as somehow competing with those four Gospels is nothing but liberal vanity. The only things we know about Jesus come from four Gospels. There are no others. There are no more authentic material. And he was a true human being. When it was hot, he sweat. When it was cold, he shivered. When he was hungry, he ate. When he was tired, he slept. He was a real person. And he was given the name Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sin. And so we're to receive this Jesus. This Jesus of the four Gospels, this Jesus of (coughs) prophecy, this Jesus who lived in history, who died in history, and who rose in history. And we are to receive Jesus as the Christ, literally meaning the Old Testament Messiah of promise and prophecy. Jesus is the Christ. Matthew 16, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Now Paul alludes to this Jesus being the Christ. Actually, you you wouldn't know it, I don't think. You wouldn't catch on. But in chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on the things that are above, not on things on the earth. He says that before in verse 1, then if you were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Where? Where's Christ? It says there. Seated on the right hand of God. Is, Is that a psalm? Do we have a, a psalm about that? Being seated at the right hand of God? Anyone got a number for that psalm? It's one of the most important psalms in the entire Old Testament. Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 22, Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. It is a psalm of messianic exaltation and glory. You see, that's the thinking that is behind everything here in this letter. You're to have your affections set on things above because you are there seated with Christ. He's there in its fulfillment of Psalm 110. You are there as a believer. Ephesians chapter 2. So as you receive the true Christ, who is not only Jesus, the, the Savior, but he is Christ, the Messiah. And he's also Lord. Now, the Greek is emphatic here. The Christ Jesus, who is the Lord. Now, being the Lord is not a generic term. Christ the Lord has nothing but Old Testament behind it. It is fulfilling all that is in the Old Testament of the coming of Messiah, the coming of the reign of God. And you are to receive this Jesus who is not just simply the man from Galilee, not just simply God's Messiah, but he is ultimately Lord of all. This deity of Christ is at the heart of what he's saying. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, a great hymn of praise. Therefore God highly exalted him and goes on to say that every knee will bow, a quote from Isaiah where God says, to me, Yahweh, every knee will bow. And Paul says, to Jesus, every knee will bow. That Jesus is God is, cannot be debated in this passage. 
We are to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what it means. Many other places like that. Acts 2.36, therefore let Paul, Peter, at the end of his sermon, his conclusion, after everything I've told you, after he's gathered together all these strategic Old Testament passages, he affirms this to his crowd before him. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. As therefore you received the Christ Jesus, the Lord. Christianity begins with a personal, decisive embrace of the true Jesus. Does that make sense? There are lots of different versions of Jesus presented out there. The watered-down Jesus, the milk-toast Jesus, the God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life Jesus. That's not the Jesus Paul has presented in Colossians. He has presented the one who is the Christ Jesus, the Lord. That is who you believe in. This is the entry point of Christianity. We are to personally accept an entire person in all of his work and in all of who he is. That is faith. Now, over history, there have been lots of two-stage accepting Jesus aberrations. Can some of you in your minds think about what those might be? Two-stage. I'm going to have Jesus as Savior and let her have him as what? Does that fit this passage? The beginning of Christianity is what? Receiving the Jesus? Is that it? Or is the Lord Jesus Christ? The triune Jesus is the one you must receive. How about getting baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, you know, you got saved and you sort of got the Holy Spirit, but if you really want your you know, spiritual Christian juice, then you need to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Two-stage Christianity. I can get half the Holy Spirit now and the other half later by who knows what means. See, my problem with Pentecostalism is not the gifts of the Spirit. There's no way you can go into the New Testament and say the, Spirit of, the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. I mean, you just can't do that. Now, you can affirm it on your own if you want to, but you will not demonstrate that from Scripture. The Scriptures are very clear that the gifts of the Spirit are going to be until the day of the Lord 1 Corinthians chapter 1, read it. Tells you how long the gifts of the Spirit. Paul says God's going to confirm you in these gifts to the end. Clearly stated. That's not the challenge of Pentecostalism. The challenge of Pentecostalism is the two-stage Christianity. You can have half a Holy Spirit now, half a Holy Spirit later. The four spiritual laws. You can have Jesus as Lord, and later he can get on the throne. Or you can have the carnal Christian, the person who just lives a carnal life, they're saved, and then one day they submit and yield and surrender to Jesus and live this jet-propelled life. All of that is heresy. All of that is destructive heresy. 
All of that is merely an accommodation to a nation full of professing, professing Christians who are not possessing Christians. And so someone says, we've got all these churches full of professing Christians not living like Christians, so we have to create a category to put them in. We'll call them carnal Christians. We'll call them, well, they're not baptized in the Spirit. We'll call them, well, they have Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. It's all an accommodation. It is not a biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is here. You receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Have you done that? Is he Lord of your life? Therefore and so. So Paul is saying, well, here's how you began the Christian life. If you did not begin this way, you have not begun at all. But you got to continue. As therefore you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so do something. Well, the first thing you got to do is you got to walk in Him. What does this mean to walk in Him? I mean, we kind of have a subliminal sense. But when you have the <clears throat> job of giving it some actual specificity, it becomes interesting. But walking assumes union with Christ. You are to walk in Him. Whatever this walking is, it is done in a spiritual union with Jesus, which is all over this letter. The second thing about walking is it means you are going to transact every aspect of your life with reference to Christ Jesus, the Lord. You're going to walk in him. You're going to not going to walk on your own and tip your hat to him. You're not going to walk on your own and it suits you and then say, I'm going to walk with Jesus when I need him. You're going to walk in him all the time because that is who you are. You are in Christ. It's about a personal relationship to God and a personal holiness before God. Read the chapter, chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 11. It's all about personal holiness. It's personal spirituality. To walk with God means to have fellowship with believers. Chapter 3, 12 through 17. You're forbearing one another. You're forgiving one another. You're doing these things. Walking with the Lord means that you live out your life in Christ in the family. Chapter 3, verse 18 through 21. It means at work, your, your mind is that you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you are a boss or whether you are an employee, whether you are a master, whether you are a slave, and no matter, your work will demonstrate your walk with the Lord. And then here's your witness to the world. Chapter 4, 2 through 6. Praying. Having words to bring the gospel to people. You're walking in him. You're to be rooted and build it up in him. Now, Gwen has a garden. Some of you have seen the garden. She's got plants exploding everywhere. She's got plants exploding in the house. She's got plants exploding around my sink. <clears throat> this winter, I am not going to have a kitchen because all my plants are going to come in from the outdoors and they're going to be around my sink. And Gwen will think, oh, well, it's just wonderful. It's only for four months. But anyway, that's between me and Gwen. I won't bring it up again. <clears throat> but one of the things about having a bunch of plants is that there are things that grow that aren't supposed to be there. The things you didn't plant, and they're weeds. Well, of course, Gwen grows the garden. She doesn't pull the weeds. That's, that's beneath her. Um, so it falls to me, the beneath one. If the garden's going to get weeded, it's going to be me. So I have become an expert in pulling weeds. The first thing I found out is wait till it rains. Then after it rains and the soil's soft, you can pull the weeds up way a lot easier. Okay? But the second thing is some of the skinny plants that look like they're nothing, 
Look out for those little critters. Some plants you pull up, the roots are shallow, and you can pull a bunch up at a time. But there's this one critter, skinny, little skinny leaves, look like there's going to be nothing. You go to pull on it, and you can't get it out of the ground. There's nothing you can do. You pull, pull, pull. Most of the time, the stem will break. Every now and then, if it rained good, you get to pull that thing all the way up. So that's my big challenge, is pulling this little critter out of the ground. When you pull them out, the plant was this tall, and the root is this tall. All right? Rooted in Christ. How are your roots in Christ doing? Are your roots going deep in Jesus? The roots of plants supply water and ingredients for the plants to grow and sustain life. How are your roots going in Jesus? Can you be easily pulled up? Or if someone's going to pull you up, they got to yank and yank and yank and a stem will break. Those roots aren't coming up. Which is it? We are to have our lives, our roots of our life, in every dimension, entangled with the Christ Jesus, the Lord. We're to be rooted in him. Built up, simple picture. It's a building. Add on to the building. Make it taller, make it wider. You're expanding the building. We're to be expanded. We're to be built up. We're to grow, as it were, in Christ. And the way to flourish, some people come and say, I wonder what my spiritual gifts are. A lot of you have been around long enough time or you figured them out. But what are my spiritual gifts? And you just have to say, well, if you want to know what your spiritual gifts are, sink roots deeper into Jesus. You see, I don't really know the names of a lot of plants. I don't know if it's going to be good or bad, if it's going to live or die. But here's what I know. If I'll water something and put miracle grow on it, I'm going to see what comes up. And either it's dead and it'll never come up, or it's going to come up and look like something. And so in your Christian life, if you're putting roots down deeper and deeper in Jesus, then what you're supposed to be in the body of Christ just emerges. You don't have to go pursuing, what are my spiritual gifts? Pursue Jesus, and your spiritual gifts will just come out. So the way to flourish in spiritual gifts and gospel projects is to sink deeper roots in Him. And in Him and in Him is everywhere. This is Christianity. It's in Christ. We're to be established in the faith. We should be neither vague or uncertain or timid as Christians. We should be diligent to be clear, confident, and bold about the gospel, about God, about Christ, about what we're supposed to be about. We're to be established, unwavering. Book of Proverbs is all about being established in wisdom. Colossians 1, 9 through 12, at the very beginning of this letter, talks about getting wisdom from God, spiritual wisdom, so you can be established. And it's in the faith. Now, twice in this letter you have in your faith, your personal faith, your personal embrace of Jesus. And three times in this letter it has the faith. It's an external, more objective view of faith. It's the body of truth of the gospel. There is your faith and there is the faith, and your faith is supposed to be in the faith. And faith is not mystical or nebulous. You don't go around saying, I believe. I haven't heard much of it now, but there for about 10 years, it's like, oh, I believe. What was that train movie with some famous actor narrating it? Anyway, it was a Christmas movie. Just got to believe. And you're like, believe in what? There's this button connected to nothing. You push it and there's nothing there. That is not Christian faith. Christian faith has content. Personal faith in God has the faith as its definition. That body of truth handed down from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles to us. Hebrews 
2.3. You're to believe and receive and be rooted and be built up and be established as you were taught. And again, we've already dealt with that. But the Bible talks about healthful teaching over and over. You remember it as sound doctrine. That really means hugios didactos, healthful teaching, teaching that brings health. Or the pattern of sound words and other such things where there's a clear presentation of God. And do not mistake the truth for theology. Theology is a human attempt to construct what the Bible teaches. Nothing wrong with it unless you give it authority. And if you start giving it authority, then you've got a problem. Now, I always remind people that today's theology is tomorrow's historical theology. Historical theology is merely what the church believed at a certain time and place. What we believe today is what we believe. Tomorrow, it'll be historical. That's what we believed yesterday and so on. Human theology, as important as it might be, can never replace the Bible. The word of God is what is to be preached and the word of God is what is to be believed. And we're to abound in thanksgiving. All throughout this letter, we are saved from sin and death. We are translated from darkness to light. We have the eternal hope of glory. Is that worth being thankful for? Well, my bank account is wavering. Really? Maybe God has your bank account wavering because that's what you need. And you complain about it instead of thanking God for it. Maybe if you had a bigger one, you'd be in real big trouble. Or if you had a smaller one, you'd do things you shouldn't. Isn't that like Proverbs chapter 30? Don't give me too much or too little. Give me just right. Give me Goldilocks bank account. Every challenge and trial in Christ has not a silver lining. It's got a golden lining. Every hardship is an opportunity to glorify God, to lay up treasure in heaven. Our lives in every way should abound with thanksgiving. God watches over every detail of our life. And interestingly, in the book of Revelation, a precious book, so hidden in our day, but so full of glory. In Revelation chapter 5, it says we reign in life. They reign on the earth. We reign in life. In chapter 20, it says we reign in death. Death cannot overcome that reign of the people of God. And in chapter 22, it says we reign forever and forever. Why are you worried about bank accounts? You have how, many time, how much time before you enter into eternal glory? For sure and for certain, because there's an atonement that saves you from your sin. That's for sure and for certain. Let your life be abounding in thanksgiving. So here's our passage. We are to receive the Christ Jesus, the Lord. We received him as he is in truth, as he in his fullness. We're to walk around in him, every part of our life, living to him, for him, in him, according to him. We're to be rooted deeply in him. We're to be built up on that foundation. We're to be established, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not vain in the Lord. Just as we were taught, this comes from a whole body of sound doctrine, sound teaching, and we're abound with thanksgiving. This is a verse worth putting on the wall. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures. Thank you for your word. Lord, just pray you would make this passage to really speak to us when we need it. We thank you for this book of Colossians that is very simple. 
It has all of your truth in it. Every aspect of truth of the gospel is there, whether it's overt or whether it's sort of subtle or subliminal, it's still there. And Lord, when we get off in the weeds in our lives, just pray that we can read a book like this and a passage like this and get our, get our compass reoriented, get our focus of our lives reestablished, get our relationship to you renewed. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.